Let's turn to the book of Second Peter, if you will, please. The first chapter for our lesson tonight. And we got down to verse 19. But in order to stand, understand verse 19, we'll read it first of all. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It says, We have also, also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in the dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Now, when you begin verse 19, it says, We have also. Look at the word also. That means that Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. When you have that word also, it means that we've already had something that gave us a sure word of testimony, whatever it was. And you know what that was. That was Peter's eyewitness of the coming and power of the Lord, which he experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration that we taught you last week. And uh, if you'll remember what we taught that uh, Jesus was, that Jesus took with him, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. He took Peter, James, and John. The Bible says he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, his raiment was white as the light. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, that's Matthew 17 I was quoting, but in Luke chapter 9 it says there appeared Moses and Elijah that spake of his decease, appeared with Christ, and they spake of Christ's death, his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Here you have the representative of the law and the great representative of the prophets appearing in glory with Jesus Christ or in Transfiguration's mountain and speaking of what? One man, Christ's death on the cross, with his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter and James and John were eyewitnesses of his majesty, they said. Uh, Peter had just said, We have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses. We have not followed fables like the uh, uh, false gods would uh, expect that their deities would appear in human form, but we were eyewitnesses of the actual majesty of the power and coming again of the Lord. And he says, we heard the voice from heaven on that holy mount when we were with him. And the voice from heaven was God's voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And so in all of this experience, Peter says, though we were eyewitnesses, though we saw a preview of Christ's coming in power, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, he says, the word of God will outstand any eyewitness, though I'm sure Peter's eyewitness, and it became a part of the word of God, which makes it sure. But uh, he's saying that we have something above even human experience and human witness, and that is the sound and forever eternal established word of God. So that, that gives us something to lay hold on, doesn't it? I don't doubt one moment but what all that Peter tells of here was absolutely true. In fact, it, it's incorporated in that sure word of prophecy when the New Testament canon is made up. And in fact, if you look at uh, uh, the third chapter, we'll see where Peter himself, and I'll give you a verse, 
we see where Peter himself approves that the epistles of Paul the apostle are classified with all the other scriptures. Look in the third chapter, verse 15 and 16. And account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul. Peter is referring to Paul. You have it in the third chapter, verse uh, 15. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, in, in Paul's letters, speaking in them of these, of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, they twist them and they make them to mean something else, as they do also the other scripture. Now that's what I want you to see. That Peter places the writings of the Apostle Paul as the other scriptures. He says they're just the same as other scriptures. And I'm sure that, if, that in Paul's writing, when Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he's not only including all of the Old Testament, but he's including Peter's epistles as well as John's in the New Testament. When he said in, you remember First Timothy, Second Timothy three sixteen, I believe it is where you find it, where he said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So what we're seeing here is that Peter is recommending Paul and saying his Scriptures are inspired and. And Paul previously had said all scriptures are inspired, and he meant including John's writings and uh, Luke's writings and Matthew's writings and all the New Testament that was then being made up and would eventually become a part of our Bible, the New Testament of our Bible, though Paul wrote the most of it. So isn't it a wonderful harmony and cooperation and witness that these inspired men of God bear toward one another. In fact, you find in the Old Testament some of the prophets, the divinely inspired prophets, quoting some of the other inspired prophets and referring back and forth to them. And you boys be real quiet, okay? Look up this way, okay? Now then, so what we have in verse 19, now look at it. Second chapter, I mean, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, back in our text. When it says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, Peter is saying, we have besides this eyewitness that I've just given you, besides this experience of Peter, James, and John on the mount with uh, uh, the Lord and seeing him transfigured, we have the word of God. And we're going to see what that word is. He says, for until you do well, look at it now and read it with me. Uh, you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. The word of God has always been a shining light in a dark place. This is a sin-darkened world. We have men with darkened hearts, do we not? And it shines into darkened hearts and illuminates and lightens that darkened heart so that it will come to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Now, of course, we know that there's going to be the day star rising when Jesus himself arises. Uh, in the future is a prophecy with healing in his wings and he'll deliver uh, and come in power and great glory. But also that same day star that is coming, Christ that is coming, he's also 
uh, to arise in our hearts individually. Now look at this in verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now you need to keep those two verses together, in a sense. Not that you cannot teach them separately, but I think you get somewhat the wrong impression if you try to uh, not include both uh, verses together in the interpretation. And the reason I say that is it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is, is of any private interpretation. And many men have taken this to mean that it takes one part of the Bible, now listen carefully, to interpret another part of the Bible. And though I will agree that all the Bible is in harmony, and that one scripture adds enlightenment to another, yet there's a little deeper and more uh, valuable thought coming here when it says, no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. It means that it's not of any private origin or disclosure. For, and it goes on to say, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So what he's saying is that the scripture did not originate with man. Now we know it does literally take scripture to interpret scripture, as it takes a diamond to cut a diamond, you know. But we're not dealing with that particular thought here. Though that is true, that we need to compare scripture with scripture, we need also to see that we're talking here about the origin of the scripture. And if you'll notice, that's the context. So really the word interpretation means it's not of any private origin. It's not of any private disclosure. It did not come by the will of man. And the, the 20th verse bears this out. Look at it. 21st verse bears this out. For it, say, it continues to say, Because or for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. See, it's showing that it's not of any private origin, right? Or private disclosure. Or private interpretation. In other words, it did not originate with man. It came not in old time by the will of man, but here's how it did come. The word but shows you how it came. It begins to show you. It came how? Holy men of God. They spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is the origin of the scripture. Some holy men of God, and the prophets were these men, were literally borne along by the Holy Spirit and wrote down the things that God wanted them to write down. And they spake as God would have them to speak. And many times, they didn't fully understand what God had them to write down. But they wrote it down anyway. Because it was what God wanted wrote down. It's what he wanted written. And to bear this out, now hold your place there. I want you to turn back to the book of First Peter. Just First Peter. And I'm going to have to calm down my emphasis a bit. I want you to turn back to First Peter in chapter 1. Let's begin reading with verse 9. Now, this is very important. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Of which salvation, I mean, receiving the end of your faith, brother, uh, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation, the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. They prophesied, but they searched diligently. 
They spoke the word of God. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But look at this verse now. And I'm trying to incorporate that, incorporate that other thought that I've just been dealing with into this verse. See? They prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of prophecy in them in the Old Testament, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now what does it say? They were searching what or what manner of time. In other words, it, it seemed that they didn't fully understand. They knew that Jesus was coming. They couldn't tell you the time any more than we can tell the time in this New Testament area of when Jesus is coming. They prophesied of it. They said he's coming. <clears throat> but if you'll remember, there was about a period of 400 years of no prophecy and no word from God, and, and it seemed that he would never come. 400 years. That they thought, well, he should have come. We said he was coming, and he hasn't come. And God of silence between the Old Testament period and the New Testament. Can you imagine how they felt? Here's these Old Testament preachers and prophets saying, God said, now, Christ is coming. Isaiah said, I can see him as uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, and he speaks in the past tense. Bruce, he was bruised for our iniquities. It was already done in the mind of, of the prophets. Right? He doesn't say he is going to be, did he? Isaiah 53, I'm quoting he doesn't, Isaiah doesn't say Jesus is going to come and then he's going to be wounded for our transgressions. He said he is wounded. He is despised and rejected of men and so on. What I'm saying is they didn't fully understand. They couldn't comprehend all of it. They, they knew it was true. They knew it would happen. <coughs> but they couldn't tell you when it was going to happen. They were pointing to the future. Now then, the apostles themselves in the New Testament just hold your place there. There's so much thought that needs to be taken into consideration. There's so much thought here that I can't. I just have to deal with one at one at a time. But look here. The apostles themselves in the New Testament did not put a pinpoint on the time of Christ's coming. Why should preachers today, out here in the middle of nowhere, in the day and age of grace, think that we know all about it? Why should we think we know all about it? Jesus could come tonight before we leave this building. He could. He's going to come someday. Peter tells us he shall come. And he says some of them said he would come. In the next chapter there, we'll talk about it in our lesson. But you see, you and I get so carried away that we think we know it all because we put all these figures together and jumble them around and come up with power square and we think that's it. And it's not. In biblical things, because God has everything under control. And so, I, I would that the Lord would come soon. Uh, John, even in his day, when he got the revelation, he said, Even so come, Lord Jesus. He was ready. That's the first hundred years of this uh, since Christ. And he says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. But you see, the Bible says, Count that the long suffering of God is salvation. We read that a minute ago. But back to this, verse 11. You still have 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them to signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so, 
verse 12 says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things. They were not ministering those things to themselves, but unto us. Isaiah's benefit was not for Isaiah, it was for you and I. See? Uh, Paul writes and says the things that happened to Israel were our examples. See? So all of this Old Testament is not written just specifically for the benefit of Israel's history or for the Jews, but for our benefit. Let me give you this. Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, that's the Old Testament, was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scripture, might have hope. It was written for what? For our learning. And yet some folks say, well, I don't care anything about learning about the Old Testament. Well, if you care anything about learning about the New Testament, it tells you in the New to care something about learning about the Old. See, you just don't split it up and chop it apart. It's all God's Word, and it all has a purpose. And we need to learn uh, and find out what that purpose was for. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in dealing with Israel and their experience, he says, these things that happened to them were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and fell in one day 20,000, uh, I believe it was. You see? So they're our examples. So the true student of the Bible is not just a New Testament student, he's a Bible student. That's what I'm trying to get over. And all of this is so tied together that you cannot study just one part and not study another. You cannot just understand the New Testament without understanding some of the Old Testament. We're going to run across things here in just a moment in our, in our lesson in the book of Second uh, Peter where our text is from that's going to absolutely involve a knowledge of the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Noah, and we're going to talk about Lot, we're going to talk about the angels having sin, we're going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you didn't know, all that's in the Old Testament, right? Every bit of it. And if you didn't have some knowledge of what was said back there, you wouldn't know a thing about what Peter was talking about. And we're going to have necessity, when we get to the third chapter of Second Peter, uh, the second chapter and the third chapter, find out, that it's necessary to know the Old Testament. All right, look at, you still have First Peter chapter 1, or do you turn from there? The twelfth verse says, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things. These Old Testament prophets ministered these things for us. And they ministered the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you uh, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, the apostolic company, the apostles, which things the angels desire to look into. What the prophets spoke of came to pass, the apostles picked it up, and they preached it, they were anointed with the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says here even the angels desired to look down from heaven and then decide to see what was going on and which things the angels desired to look into. That and back in our text. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved. The word moved means born along, literally taken into possession uh, by the Holy Spirit, so that they would write nothing that was error. And though these men were, men were able to be erroneous, yet when God had them to write down, they wrote the truth. Men as such 
to all is human, we, we say once in a while. Just like I was teaching all of you the other day about Job, and my mind was, my memory was not functioning as well as it needed to be, and I kept saying Job's seven children. Well, he had seven sons, but some way or another that just locked in in my computer, and that's all you got was the seven, right? But he had three daughters, so he had ten children. So, you know, a lot of times we as preachers, we say something and we really mean well, but our, we're all human. And we cannot function on uh, all fours all the time. Sometimes one of the pistons is missing a little bit, you know. And uh, we just have to see that uh, you have to allow that for that. And, and that's why you need not be so critical of uh, a preacher. He may, you know, you may hear a preacher... I used to hear Dr. Kim, one of the best preachers I ever heard. I love to hear Dr. Kim. And every time he had re referred to Hebrews 13, 20, he would say Romans 13, 20. Every time. In fact, in his writings, in his commentaries, he'll have... And, and, and it's just to show in his mind that that's where it's found, because instead of checking up, we have to check up on ourselves. You know that? I'll be quoting one scripture one time, and I'll say, Now look, is that the fourth verse of the fifth? Or is that Romans or Hebrews? Or is that Galatians? And you better check up every once in a while because you might be quoting. But to him it was just as true as if it was Romans 13, 20. Now, both are important scriptures. And they're wonderful. But the thing about it is, it's Hebrews 13, 20 we had in mind. And you know what that is, don't you? That's where Jesus was raised from the dead and our great uh, uh, priest that we're talking about. Hebrews 13, 20, it says... Now, now the God of peace that brought up, brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's a very important verse. But we need to always remember that we can be wrong in our quoting. But these men were not wrong. Though they were wrong in other things, they were not wrong when they wrote the scripture down. Elijah was very wrong when he was running away from Jezebel and he says, Lord, you don't have anyone left but me. And God said to Elijah, I have 7,000 men, Elijah. You're just completely wrong about this. There's 7,000 men that have not bowed me to Baal. But yet when Elijah wrote the word down and when Elijah prophesied, it was exactly what God wanted him to say. And even that record of his fingers is there, isn't it? And, and all through the Bible. You see, that's why we know you, we can be more assured that this is literally the Word of God, but it doesn't cover up man's mistakes at all. You know, if Peter was writing all of it, he would have left out that time when he denied the Lord, wouldn't he? He might have left out that time that Paul and him had a little argument about uh, circumcision and about the law, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face. He might have left that out. Of course, you say, well, that was in Paul's writings, yes, but, but Peter here certainly vindicates Paul, doesn't he? Because we've already pointed that out and says his is the word of God too. So we see that they were all men and yet they were perfect in as far as their writings were concerned. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now when we come down to the third chapter, if you, I mean the second chapter if you will. Yeah, Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1. But there were, all, there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Peter says even back in the Old Testament that had the false prophets. And he says, in the New Testament now, we have false teachers. And there shall be false teachers among you. And here's what these false teachers do. It says, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. heresies. You know, hearsay or heresies or 
a falsehood that are just spoken from one to the other that cannot be proved you see the word of God you can take the word of God and prove your point right but if you start speculating and this fellow says this and this cult says that and you have a fellow over here that's teaching one way over here another way and departing from the word of, word of truth when you have them doing that they do not prove their point do they it says, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. To me it appears that this scripture is talking about the fact that Christ's death was sufficient even for their redemption, but they had refused it. He bought the souls of men, but all souls will not receive Christ, and that, that purchased salvation for them, they're just the same as letting it go. To, now there's a different line of thought. There's those that teach that that uh, only those that are bought are saved. But I believe all are bought, but not all are saved. But you're bought with a price, and Christ paid the price for the salvation of every man, whether he makes himself available to it for it or not, you know. Just like if I had, and this is the way I believe it. I believe that, say for instance, I had a thousand dollars here, and I say, uh, we'll divide that equally, and it's your part, that's your part, see. That equal division, whatever it be, say it says fifty dollars piece. Okay, okay. Every one of you's got that, but unless you claim that, that's yours and it's there. But if you don't claim it, you don't get it. And Jesus has bought and paid for the redemption and salvation of every soul, every sinner. But if he doesn't receive it, he just leaves it. You say, well, he wasted his money. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't waste that price because he redeemed all of a sinful world. But all of a sinful world will not accept the salvation. Now, there's, a, there's another line of thought that tries to make people believe that he only bought a certain few. In other words, it's, it's Calvinism to the extreme, you might call it. Hyper-Calvinism that teaches that now that uh, only a certain few were bought and paid for. And I don't believe that. I believe that everyone can be saved if they will be saved. If they don't, it's not because Jesus has any lack or, uh, of the purchase price for them. They, they need to come to him and they can be saved if they will. But it's their, it's their opportunity to accept him and it's, it's their... Uh, uh, consequences if they reject him as their Lord and Savior. So it says, even denying the Lord that bought them, if he had bought them and they were really saved, they, they had accepted that uh, salvation that Jesus paid for, then they would be saved. They wouldn't be these kind of people, would they? That's the difference. So they deny the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. It says, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. I'm going to have to just slow down a minute now. Look this. Many. Look at that. Many people. It's not just a few people will be deceived. Think of it. Many shall follow their pernicious ways. The lascivious ways, if you have a marginal record. It means they're ungodly ways. They're living in sin. And they're going to have not just a few followers, but a lot of people are being deceived. And you know, it was true. John talked about it. Paul himself talked about it. Peter's speaking about it here. Look in uh, the book of... Uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you will. Verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, look at this now, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed. Look at this word, giving heed. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. 
It says some here shall depart from the faith. And what, what are they going to do? They're going to give heed. You know what the word means to do? It means to begin to pay attention to these false teachings, to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In other words, people are paying attention to things they have no business of giving any heed to or paying any attention to. Why will a fellow, when he knows something to be wrong to start with, give it any uh, any uh, value at all? Why won't he just turn away from it and say, fellow, that's all wrong. Stick with the Word of God. And a lot of a lot of times the reason is they don't know any better, but others know better, and yet they're just tempted to to listen to something new that comes along. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. Starting to pay attention to false teachers and false teachings that the devil himself has concocted to try to deceive the human race and to, to deceive individuals. That's what we're faced with today. People say, well, this different group over here, they say, well, never mind what they say. Never mind what the others say. What does the Bible say? What does God's Word say? And so, what happens? You, you go off into Mormonism, or the witnesses, so-called. You go off into the Christian scientist area. You go off into some of these various groups and cults, not knowing their Adventism, or uh, any direction from the word, true Word of God. And people are doing that. They're paying attention to it, aren't they? And, and Paul says they're going to. Now look, John warns us, First John chapter 4. That was First Timothy 4. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what John says. Peter and Paul and John all had to... They knew what they were facing. They were facing false prophets and false teachers and deception. And Paul forewarned of it. And Peter spoke about it. And John says, Beloved, it, it, even in John's day, in the days of the apostles, he says in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now look at that warning from John. And you know what he's saying there? He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, in other words, it means, in, this, in a sense, to not just be in the habit of, of accepting, but be in the habit of refusing to believe everything that comes along. Just be in the habit of making it check out before you believe it. Believe not. He's not saying believe if it's right. He's saying believe not until you know it's right. See, it's put in the negative. He's saying be in the habit of refusing to believe every spirit. Be in a refusing habit until you know better. And if you're in that habit, you're not going to be swallowed up by these things. But if you're in the habit of being so open to all of it that you say, well, it, they, they're pretty good folks, or this guy appears to be all right, or after all, he spoke sweetly and kindly and, and, and he was real good to me, or they did a favor for me or something else, you know, you can have all reasons in the world to give a guy, give heed. But... That will not justify the fact that you need to have him to speak the truth before you give him the approval of it being true. You know, this is a day and an hour that this lesson that you're getting tonight needs to be heeded. It needs to be nailed down in your mind so that you'll know that, that you have instructions here as to how you're to go about accepting uh, a message or a word or a spirit or a preacher or 
uh, that's given, how you go to go about testing it. And you're getting it right here. This is what it says. Peter says that there are going to be many false teachers among you as there was among them. Paul says, don't give, he says there's going to be a time come that they will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. In other words, that word means to begin to pay attention. We, I hate to be repetitious, but I want you to get it. And then John says, be in the habit of not receiving everything that comes along just because uh, it's, a, it's a preacher. Or he's a preacher. Believe not every spirit. He says, but try the spirits when they're of God. And he tells us how we can know they're of God. Now, he doesn't leave us hanging and say, well, now then, it must be of God because, uh, you know, we have our own reason to deduct whether or not it is of God. But he tells us how we can know it's of God. Now, look at it. In the next two verses, he tells us the very cheapest and the main test to put to anyone's teaching. He says, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. He doesn't say, hereby think this is of the Spirit of God. He says, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. In other words, the, the, the preaching and teaching of the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what it means? That Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, the incarnation. God manifest in the flesh. And the, person, the devil's first attack is against the deity of Christ. You'll notice it every time. They, they come short of accepting the full person of Christ as pre-existent deity, the creator. The, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 10, I believe it is, says, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. See, the pre-existent deity and glory of Christ, and that He became flesh and dwelt among us. And every spirit that confesses this, he says, is of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness to this. But then he tells you what is not. In verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. God. You see that? Now John wrote this down so we'd know how to uh, test everything. And you have any group, sect, cult that comes around and does not believe in the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and John says here, that one is not of God. I don't care what name they wear or what they profess to do or how they're converting the world to their religion. John says they're not of God. They're not of God. And he says, he tells you what they are. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. He says, John, John says, it's already here in my day. That was about 180. We'll say if we get to the extreme of John's life. When he was banished to Patmos even shortly after this and gave us the book of Revelation. And we'll just say in round figures, 100 A.D. So for another 1,900 years now, it's been in the world. He says it's not, it was in the world at that time, and he says now it's already in the world. And he's not talking about the personal Antichrist here. Look at it. But that spirit of Antichrist, it is not the Antichrist that will be revealed. In the, in the book of Revelation, we have the record of it. In Thessalonians, where Paul speaks of it. But he's saying that this is that spirit of Antichrist that's already in the world. Now then, you, you have enough 
you know, you have enough uh, information here that you can tell whether something is true or false. And you know you ought to be in the habit of applying it to everything you hear uh, through the preaching of uh, on the radio or television or from any pulpit in the land, from any evangelist, from any pastor or teacher or preacher or any uh, television uh, program that you have coming on. You ought to be able to evaluate. You have the information. You have the way to nail it down. And you ought to start doing that. And say, look, I'm going to find out if that's of God. And then you can know whether or not that is of God. <coughs> now, that doesn't mean that in every uh, thing that people, uh, that men can be erroneous in, in the whole Word of God, is found in that particular one test. Because we know that we have to declare the whole counsel of God. And there are various things, other things, that are interpreted in the Bible that, uh, you know, uh, may be a little un understood a, di a little different by one pastor or one teacher than another. But these things are not the major things. This is not the difference between Christ's deity and him not being deity. It doesn't come down to that. Our time is gone. We'll have to close. Uh, we'll pick up with Second Peter chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 2 when it speaks of many shall follow their pernicious ways which we've been talking about. Many following the false teacher. And we'll go right on down in a lesson. Second Peter is a wonderful book. We'll finish it and then give you something else.